broadcast today. We trust that wherever and whenever this particular show finds you, that you're in good spirits, good health, and most importantly on that good and narrow way. It has almost no bearing on society at large. It appears to alter no policies, alters no real global agendas, and is for the most part ridiculed by those in the higher echelon of science and education, psychology, and other such arenas. Yet, it is there haunting the lives and psychological memories of millions, it is there. Always making massive money at the box office, the paranormal radio broadcasts, the books, the urban legends. For something so intangible, so untouchable, so truly undefinable and unreachable, it is incredibly present and far more deeply rooted in the global consciousness than we realize. It has roots in the soul of man going back 6,000 plus years. I'm talking about the UFO phenomenon. I'm talking about the star people, the legends of Anunnaki, the procreators of the Nephilim, the gods, the powers in heavenly places spoken of throughout the Bible. I'm talking about the UFO phenomenon that has been around since humanity's two parents walked out of the Garden of Eden, witnessing behind them the cherubim and the sons of God standing watch over the Garden of Eden. It is a subculture unto its own in human lore. It has a pull and a magnetism that is alter-dimensional, spiritual. Some would even claim it is demonic, though I would say not exclusively demonic. The truth is, events happen all the time. And for skeptics all the time, there is an answer. At least an answer good enough for them to feel comfortable and cooperate the idea and the notion of the exclusively materialistic universe in which they lock themselves away. 
But more than we realize, there are ruptures into the space, into the world, into the dimension that we exist in. Things, sights, sounds, beings, just beyond our scope of context, always just beyond our field of vision, slightly beyond our ability of thorough and empirical explanation. But they are there in our dreams, in our visions, in our folklore, in our mysteries, outside our windows, peering into our world, even as we long to peer into their world. But these events take place far more frequently than we realize. Although many are explainable, many are not. A recent example is the mass sighting of a simply put unidentified, I wouldn't even say object, I would say a UAO, an unidentified appearing object. A very strange dimensional appearance in the state of Florida, witnessed by hundreds. Or how about the aerial city, or I should say cities, sighted in two different regions in China, seen by hundreds of thousands of people. Or how about the sounds of the trumpets surging through the skies in multiple places around the world? And on and on and on the list could go. And how about the myriad of stories? Stories told by simple common people who find themselves often beyond their power or desire, caught up into a world, in a plane beyond their current frame of reference, a plane in an existence in a world beyond the shadows in which they had no desire to enter into, but now cannot extricate themselves from. One such world and one such story is told by William Stoker. He tells us in his own words of such events in his life. And his story that I'll share with you today begs the question, how much does our military actually know? Do they track and are they aware of what exactly is going on in the skies above us and in the darkened homes and rooms of our lives? Are they aware of the encounters that we are having with these beings? But more to the point, are they aware that there is something more dubious, more cynical, more generational in the encounters that the beings are having with us? The story of Mr. Stoker begins in his own words. By saying, it began with an encounter, an experience resembling in many ways more recent reports of UFO abductions. By itself, my experience is of no real importance. But it is the aftermath of my experience, the strange and terrible things that happened years later, that is unique. For these events shed light on the true nature of the government conspiracy to cover up the truth about UFO encounters, and even hint and a sinister connection between the elites who control our government and certain UFO entities. In the summer of 1955, at the age of 11 years, I attended a school-sponsored summer camp at Garner State Park in the Texas Hill Country. We boys slept on cots in the tents. My tent was perhaps the third or fourth down from the end. 
and was right near the very front of the tent. Beyond the last tent was more or less open Texas wood country, partly wooded, partly deserted, that extended perhaps one or two hundred yards to a fence that ultimately extended down to a river. A personless, inhabitless country where we were camping. I went to sleep as usual one night as we were camping and all seemed well. But on this particular night, my life was about to change in ways I could not even imagine and still cannot explain. I found myself standing deep into the night, barefoot, sleeping bag slung over my shoulder by a fence. The night was clear and moonless, and I was in a very strange state of consciousness. I was fully aware of who I was and where I was, but I was completely calm and unafraid when I should have been terrified. For I was, in fact, more or less surrounded by a group of people, beings, really, whose exact appearance I do not remember, except that they looked human, or more accurately, nearly human. No words were spoken, not even a voice in my head, but I had a strong sense of being questioned and tested in some fashion. Then, as if by all of a sudden, I found myself walking back toward the area of the tents and gradually waking up out of the strange, conscious yet unconscious state in which I had been in. I recall looking over my shoulder and saw the fence only a few yards behind me where I just was in a matter of seconds or what felt to be seconds, but I saw no people, no beings, no craft. I was never in any UFO that I can recall. I did not see any craft that I remember. The area in which we were camping out had numerous limestone caves, but I don't recall being in one. Perhaps it was a waking dream superimposed on the real landscape and coinciding with sleepwalking, but that just doesn't add up to some of the experiences that I had post this one. Perhaps a group of larger kids had carried me out, I had thought, maybe, and left me as a prank. But these explanations and others do not adequately explain the real event that occurred and the changes that stayed with me and the seemingly unconnected and yet connected events that would occur throughout the rest of my life. From that time on, in the years that followed, I continued to have strange and seemingly paranormal experiences. Years later, in the fall of 1963, I was at the New Mexico State University in Las Cruces on the mysterious Rio Grande Rift Zone to begin my junior year. In the fall of 1964, my senior year, I was in the USAF ROTC cadet program. I was sent, along with another cadet, to Holloman Air Force Base in Alamogordo, New Mexico, for a pre-commissioning physical. Remember that for years, for years now, there have been many strange stories about Holloman, including accounts of UFO landings and encounters at this particular airbase. I remember clearly the drive to Holloman. Master Sergeant Gregg was driving the two young cadets. And I even remember much of the conversation among the three of us. 
I remember our driving into the front gate of the base and Sergeant Gregg making a disparaging remark about the guard. I remember our driving up to the tree-lined street. I remember the buildings. I remember us beginning to enter into one of the main buildings. And yet after that, no matter how much I have tried, no matter how much I have sought for uh, hypnotic regression treatment, after that I can remember nothing. Nothing. Nothing about the physical. Nothing about my time there. My next memory is being back at New Mexico State University. I literally have a block of my life totally disappeared. At least a day's worth of my life, under no circumstances, am I capable of recalling or drawing out that information of what took place at Holloman Air Force Base the day of my pre-commissioning physical. I was eventually commissioned as a second lieutenant in June 1965 and called to serve in active duty, eventually becoming a NORAD intelligence officer. Through a strange set of occurrences, I became intimately involved in the UFO business. Under AFR 200-2, UFO investigation was an intelligence function, and so ironically, as I thought at the time, I was ipso facto a UFO investigator. This regulation was superseded by AFR 80-17, making UFO an R&D function, but I did retain the job as an additional duty. For various reasons that made sense at the time, I decided to leave the service when my time was up. But still having some lingering faith in our government and not wanting my training experience and security clearance to go to waste, I applied by letter for a job as an intelligence analyst with the Defense Intelligence Agency. They never replied. Yet at this same time, they hired another young officer that I knew, a fine man, far less qualified than I by training and clearance level for this particular job. Something did not add up. I was completely and totally shut out, ignored. It was as if I felt that I were marked, allowed to operate, yet always on a chain of observation. Some years later, a CIA recruiter arrived in town. At the time, I was stationed at the base in Duluth, Minnesota. So I arranged to meet him and be interviewed. I actually seemed to make a good impression on him, and he told me that, of course, he couldn't promise anything as a recruiter, but that they had multiple positions to fill, and I was highly qualified. A day or two later, not from the recruiter, but from the CIA directly, I received a terse telegram from Langley, Virginia, stating flatly that they would not hire me, giving no reason, no follow-up, no recourse. Then the recruiter called me some days later and asked why he had not heard back from me. They had not even bothered to tell the recruiter. The recruiter, in a position to size me up personally, would send Langley a list of possible candidates with his recommendations, and then, and only then, would they decide whom to hire and whom to further weed out. But in my case, before even getting the full final report from the recruiter, who seemed to feel that I was qualified, someone at Langley felt that I was not for them. They knew, or thought they knew, something about me. 
They had a file on me, or at least they had my name on a list of undesirables. But why? That was the question. How could they even have heard of me? I was nothing, nobody. But for the first time, I began to realize with a sinking feeling, I was, in fact, a known and rejected quantity. I begin to fear that the limitations placed upon my military and intelligence career and many of the events that seemed to be unconnected were now indeed connected with that night in Texas and the subsequent events and encounters that took place in my family that no one but my family at the time I thought knew. I had and still do have the distinct feeling that I was and am being tracked watched at a distance. They, whoever they were, were aware who I was. But who was I? Only one thing finally became clear to me over the years. That night in Texas, those events all through my early youthful life, there was something more to them than met the eye. Something that placed me under the microscope of those in the powers and in the shadows of power who wanted to watch me at a distance. It was several frustrating years before I finally realized that the government, indeed, didn't necessarily have to know about my particular experience, or even if they did know about my particular experience, there was still something more profound going on. It seems, after much research, that abductions seem to run in families. And children of abductees occupy an important place in government agency tracking. All the government had to do was track the families of potential abductees and exclude members from certain governmental positions, watching them, observing them. Exactly why they would do this is uncertain. Perhaps they consider such people as a security risk. What makes me what makes me an abductee and a child of an abductee so important? Yes, I was allowed to become a United States Air Force intelligence officer, but I was limited from the DIA and the CIA. Why one sensitive position and yet not another? This is one of the several questions I cannot answer. And yet the events of my life and the doors that have closed and the encounters that I have had have all served to tell me two things. First, that that night in Texas started me down a road, sometimes conscious, sometimes semi-conscious, a road into a world that I cannot even now tangibly wrap my arms around. And secondly, I am not the only one aware that I have operated within this world. I tried to tell my story from time to time, but naturally enough, no one ever really takes me serious. The author and researcher Kevin Randall wrote a fantastic article in a now-defunct magazine and then a book called Project Moondust. In it, he included copies of government documents secured via the Freedom of Information Act. His information connects deeply with my experiences. And quite frankly, I have come to find out millions of others. There are many accounts of 
people having been abducted by UFO entities. But what is even stranger is the numerous, verifiable stories of people that have been abducted by UFO entities only to be later abducted or interrogated by the military. It is as if the aliens do something to us and the men in black, as we have come to call them, or the military, checks to see if what they have done has actually taken. How, over the years, could several people independently invent the same ridiculous-sounding story, never knowing one another, long before this stuff was ever entered into the mainstream of folklore? It is my belief as far back as 1953 the government was capable of tracking abduction-prone families and that there was something profoundly interesting to the government, not simply about the abductee, but about the offspring of the abductees. Therein lies the great issue that I believe they are seeking after, the generation of the abductees. Ironically, I have always suspected that my experience might be paranormal in nature. Perhaps other people will come forward with more pieces of the puzzle. But until then, my mystery, like so many others, only deepens. The story of Mr. Stoker, much in his own words. The question becomes, when you hear a story like this, if we take it at face value, if we take it that the man is telling the truth, how much do the inner halls of government, the dark forces of the military, know about the UFO dimensional reality? I'm not talking about the surface stuff. I'm not talking about the Republican and Democrat debates. I'm not talking about the stuff that makes CNN and Fox and MSNBC. I'm not talking about the stuff that keeps the, the low information voters circulating and their heads spinning. I'm talking about an upper echelon, a power, a reality that drives the world. How much do the dark forces within our own government and others know about the UFO dimensional reality? How deeply are they tracking the families of abductees? And what more? Why? Why the families? Why are the children of the abductees so very important, both to, quote-unquote, the aliens and, quote-unquote, the military. It behooves the question, is there a bloodline of the gods? God, God the Father, the true God of the Scripture, has an earthly people, the Jews. Does Satan? Does Satan desire to have an earthly people? Are there many phrases in Scripture that refer to the wicked, quote-unquote, generation, both spiritual, yes, in their designation, but also physical? How real and how profound are these stories that we are hearing? And the question that drives many of us that are into at least investigating or at least taking a bird's-eye view of this is that is there a biological, generational manipulated group or subset waiting to be released on the population at large. The mystery eludes us. 
We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is enough smoke in these issues to assure us that there is a fire. The question is how, fi- how deep and how hot is the fire burning? Exactly what is the generation of the wicked? The mystery eludes us while at the same time drawing us. All we seem to see are shadows, vagaries in the night, dust passing in and out of the moonlight. And while we see through a glass darkly now, I do believe the time is coming soon when we will see all things as they truly are. For now, now we see through the moonlight. We see through the shadows. But shadows, I remind you, are always representative of something of substance. Sweet dreams.